you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the psalm for this Sunday, Psalm 24. As I mentioned, Pastor Jeremy switched things up last Sunday. Uh, He'll come back and preach Psalm 23 in a few weeks. Our sermon today is entitled, The King of Glory is Our God. I think it's very fitting for us, especially this Sunday, off the cuff of recent events, uh, just to see how fitting and true this statement really is. And actually, no matter what happened with the recent decision to overturn Roe vs. Wade, even if God hadn't seen fit to do that, he's still king. No matter what happens, God is sovereign. No matter what happens, good or bad, God is king of kings. So today we're going to be examining Psalm number 24, and this is a kingship psalm. There's about eight of them uh, identified in the book of Psalms. Um, And so this is a kingship psalm, and the goal of this type of psalm is to celebrate and reaffirm our loyalty to God as theocratic, as totally in charge, and ruling and reigning over all things. These psalms are a call for us to celebrate God's sovereign rulership over all things. Also, the theocratic kingship psalms, generally known as royal psalms, bring out uh, this aspect of Jesus coming through the line of David, and this really highlights his office as king. We identify three areas that Jesus uh, offices of Christ, and that is prophet. He is the great teacher. He is priest. He made atonement for us. That is the whole redemptive theme of Scripture is the blood of Christ, the power of his blood. So he's prophet, he's priest, but he's also king. He rules and he reigns. He is seated in heaven right now, ruling over all things, and he's not as many in the evangelical world portray him as some effeminate little hippie up in heaven, wringing his hands, wondering if things are going to go okay. He's a powerful Christ, seated on his throne, ruling and reigning. He came through the line of David and fulfilled that line of king perfectly. And so, before we get into this, there is a structure of the psalm. It consists in three parts, bringing out different considerations of the character and the ways of our God. This is a great passage for us to recount who God is. Again, we often form a God, we fashion a God of our own making, and what we need is God to press upon us who he is and realign our thoughts towards who God is. And so we see the character and the ways of our God. God's office and place of ruling and reigning is inextricably linked to his very character and to his very ways. So we're going to see today, number one, the great king in the first two verses. The great king. He is our creator, God. Then we're going to see in verses three through six, the hill of our Lord, the place of God, and that this is a place of holiness. He is a holy God. Then we're going to see in verses seven through ten today that he is the divine warrior, mighty in battle. He is a glorious king. So I also want us to note as we read this in a minute, that the psalm's structure and order is very similar to the liturgy or the order of worship, in other words, that the elders have 
formulated carefully over a period of years in studying worship, corporate worship. So you're going to see it has a a similar rhythm to the way that we worship as a church. So it's really a liturgy on, it's really a study on worship, a primer on worship for us today. How to worship properly, corporately together. So it teaches us to worship in a proper manner with a very high view of God, a very low view of ourselves. Hasn't that been flipped largely today in many churches? People come in with big heads and look at me and look at what I can do and, and then God's kind of over here somewhere, right? No, God, God is the center. We worship in and through him. He is mighty. This is a great, this, this greatly recalibrates us to see how we are to worship in a reverent and joyful, powerful manner. To recognize our fallenness and our need for sanctification and then to rise up and receive forgiveness to glorify the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He is king. So let's read Psalm 24. And I, I do want to ask you to stand if you are able out of respect of the reading, public reading of the scripture. Psalm 24. This is the word of the Lord. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, He will receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. You may be seated. Father, I ask that we would just rest in this truth that we just read, that you are the King of glory. Who can stand in your holy hill? It is only because of Jesus Christ and his blood and and his resurrection that we can enter into your presence. And may we do so with thanksgiving and joy today. Would we celebrate well as a church these truths that we are about to unfold? In Christ's name we ask these things. Amen. So here's the, here's the big idea, the snapshot, if you will, of, of what we're going to journey through together today. The big idea centers around who God is. This is theology. All of us are theologians. I I don't know if you know that or not. You don't have to go to seminary to be a theologian. All of us are theologian, meaning we have thoughts about God. We, we, We want to, as his people, to know more greatly who God is. And this is the practice of theology, what we're doing today. We're unpacking and seeing the character and the greatness that we're called to meet with him. 
You see, many people are very, very careless today about the presence of God. I think that many people minimize the greatness and the glory and the holiness of God. And so their relationship with God is kind of like this buddy system. You know, you go, you, who are you going to take with you? You better take your buddy with you, right? They've, they've really minimized the presence of God in their life. That he's always watching. He always sees. He knows why you do what you do. And that ought to change us. That ought to have a, a great deal with how we come into his presence. How it is that we live before him. This psalm really shows us how we meet with God and that it matters how we meet with God. The psalm is about the mutual advent with the coming and going of God and humans entering into each other's spheres. This psalm is about preparing to also commune with God and how to go about preparing to be in his presence. So I just want to ask you this really quickly. Did you prepare for this morning? And I don't, I don't just mean getting your clothes out the night before and making sure your shirt's halfway ironed and those things, making sure you didn't stay up too late so you could be somewhat aware today, right? I'm talking about, did you prepare your heart for the gathering today? Did you prepare yourself? Did you prepare yourself knowing that we're going to be having the Lord's table this morning? And that we ought to come reverently into this space of worship as his people on his day. It's not your day. It's Christ's day. So this psalm is about preparing to commune with God and how to go about preparing to be in God's presence with God's people and to meet with one another with the right heart. So here's the sentiment. That was the big idea, but what's the heart of the psalm? The heart of this truth is this. God, the King of kings, Lord over all, meets with us. He wants to bless us. Did you read that in here? He wants to bless you. He wants to give himself to us, not because we are worthy, but simply because God is good. It's not about your worth. It's about God's worth. He is that great that he can come and meet with broken sinners through his son. I pray that that truth of the psalm causes you to walk in truth, to be overfilled with joy. So verses 1 and 2 talk about the sovereign creator king. First thing that we need to note here in verse 2 is that his creation was very orderly. This is the kind of God he is. He is a God of order. He's not a God of chaos. This is why we have order to our worship. And who's the one who gave us the order of worship actually? God does. Over and over you see this rhythm of moving from guilt to grace to gratitude all throughout the scriptures when the people of God meet. I hope you understand that's God's rhythm of worship. Okay? So his creation was orderly. He has a way of worship. It's not just free for all, anybody getting up and talking. Remember that in Corinth? Apostle Paul took them through. There needs to be order here. Okay, there's an order, there's structure. His creation was orderly in verse 2. This implies this truth and how he brought it to fruition. This stands against those who also in creation who believe falsely in a chaotic evolution. That spontaneous combustion caused a bunch of goo that spawned life over millions of years so that we ended up coming from a bunch of space monkeys. 
Was I a little off on what's taught? I summarized it. I'm paraphrasing a theory that is taught as truth, but it is really quite silly that a dressed-up form of Darwinism is taught as science instead of the quackery that it is. But God's creation is purposeful. God's creation is thoughtful. It's orderly, and it shows his perfect wisdom. Therefore, our worship is also supposed to reflect his character of being thoughtful, embodying all that, that form, but it's to be thoughtful, it's to be orderly, and it's supposed to show forth the perfections of God's wisdom. Even deists recognize the orderliness of creation. Thomas Jefferson himself thought that there was a scientific evidence for design in nature. In 1823, he insisted so in a letter to John Adams when he said this, I hold without appeal to revelation that when we take a view of the universe in its parts, general or particular, it is impossible for the human mind not to perceive and feel a conviction of design. Consummate skill and indefinite power in every atom of its composition contemplating everything from the heavenly bodies down to the creaturely bodies of men and animals. He argued, it is impossible, I say, for the human mind not to believe that there is in all this design, cause and effect, up to an ultimate cause, a fabricator of all things from matter and motion. We see, too, evident proofs of the necessity of a superintending power to maintain the universe in its course and order. So with such thoughts in mind, he wrote to the Declaration asserting the inalienable rights of human beings derived from the laws of nature and nature's God. God is a God of order. It says so in verse 2, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. His creation is not only orderly, but it speaks of ownership. When you create something, you own it. You put your name on it. When artists, what do they do? They put their name on their artwork, and then they make millions of dollars if they're halfway decent, right? Okay? So there's ownership. They put their name on something that they created, and God created us to be creators in a manner of speaking. He is creator, he's sustainer, and he is also possessor of all things in this world and under this world. So he can come back and take back all that was his in the first place. So the psalm, speaking of the earthly sphere as his own, is already the Lord's by virtue of the fact that he created it. So the Lord's coming, it's not a hostile takeover. When Christ comes again in the end, he's not coming, this isn't a hostile takeover. He's just coming back to claim what was already his in the first place. He's not an invader conquering that which belongs to another. Rather, the Lord comes precisely as the Lord of this earth. I'll use an example. When I was in college, I had a roommate. Uh, at, at my college, I had to wear a tie because we were snooty. Okay? So I had to wear a tie to class. Ladies had to wear dresses. They were trying to prepare us for the business world. And I had a roommate that liked my tie collection. And so he would wear my ties. And then I couldn't find my ties. And I had to go back and take my ties. So did I go and steal my ties? No, I went and took something that was already mine. That's what we see here. God is taking, possessing something that he created that was already his in the first place. This creation was a kingdom 
that was established here on earth to be a place of fruitful, prosperous life, reflecting his glory and his character and his goodness. This creation was a kingdom for his people, and it requires the ongoing presence of God. That's what separates us from the deists. You know, Thomas Jefferson was a deist. He believed that God was a clockmaker, a watchmaker. He created this world, and he stepped back and has nothing to do with it, Right? He's not intimate with you. He's not acquainted with you. This separates us. We need the ongoing presence of God. God takes the chaos of sin which we caused and he calms it down with his presence and he provides a way for greater life through the kingship and the rulership of Jesus Christ, his son. So this takes us to the next point where we move from strictly looking at who God is, who he is, and who we are in light of God. Because as you learn, first of all, who God is, then it starts to have an impact on how you relate to him. Or it should. Right? So now we come to the hill of the Lord, or the the place of meeting with God, in verses 3 through 6. The pressing question that we have to wrestle with here is this. As it says, who is acceptable to God? Because I know God is creator, he's ruler, he created everything perfectly and we messed it up. How is it that I am to relate with him? Who is acceptable to this creator king? And the Bible says this, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin separates us from God. We have to be made right. All his ways as creator king, can we stand in the presence of God? And before we get into this, I want you to notice some language here. In verse 5, it says, He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of, what does it say? His salvation. So where does salvation come from? It comes from this God. The salvation does not come from you trying harder, doing more. You cannot be justified by good works, okay? The salvation comes from God. He is the author of salvation. Because as we're reading this, some of you are probably thinking, boy, this is moralism here. You, gotta, you have to do this. You have to do that. You have to be righteous. What this is saying here is this, this is the tail wagging the dog, if that's the theology that you have, works-based salvation. What we have here is a very clear understanding that because you have salvation that is given to you from God, you receive everything else in life. You receive the righteousness that's inalienable that comes from outside of you. It comes from Jesus Christ. Along with that comes all these other benefits of being in the family of God. So I just want to square that and and make sure that that's before us before we get into this. So how must we then, because we have salvation from God... How do you prepare yourselves for worship of this God, this creator king? Number one, sanctification. Sanctification. Justified is that he declared you righteous because of his son. Because you repented of your sins and you're trusting in Jesus' righteousness for your salvation. If you've done that, you start to now live a life of putting off sin and putting on Christ. The putting off, putting on that we read about from the Apostle Paul all the time. Sanctification. So when we come into his presence, we can expect to receive some, some other things from God, both blessing and continual righteousness, resting in his work. 
This is something that we tend to miss from time to time. In verse 4, we learn that the Lord, creator king, expects purity of heart and singleness of heart from all who seek his presence. And if you're a Christian, you're seeking the presence of God. Right? That's why you read your Bibles. You ought to be praying daily because you're running to Christ. You're clinging to Christ. And the longer you walk with God, the more tightly to him you cling. The more serious you see your sin. The more, the more holy you see God. What do we mean by purity of heart and singleness of heart? Purity of heart is the condition of living before God in accordance with his word, with his will, with his ways, out of the desire of his heart. So again, as we read from the book of Joel during our time of confession, appearance means nothing. Appearance, appearance can be very, very deceiving. You may be able to attend here for decades and appear to be something that you're truly not. Is that hard to do? Well, maybe with our elders here, that might be kind of hard to do. But you can get away with masquerading as something you're not. God looks on your heart. He knows why you do what you do. He knows what you're doing. He knows the reasons, the motives for everything that you do. God looks on the heart and my heart to see if it belongs singularly to him in purity of your thoughts and your motives. The one who has clean hands and a clean heart is innocent of wrongdoing and readily asks for forgiveness when he or she has sinned against God, whether through breaking God's commands or failing to do what they ought to have done, both sins of omission and commission. So let's flesh out the idea of the singleness of heart. It is complete loyalty to God in heart and your life. We do not, we do not dishonor God's name by idolatry or by falsehood, verse 4. This is the opposite of what so many inadvertently do in their Christian walks, where people look at life through two eyes, through one sacred, the other one secular. This spiritual bipolarization, schizophrenia, is not of God. To segment our life into Jesus' life and the me-what-I-want life is not congruent with the Scriptures. It's not found in here. We are not our own, but we are bought with a price, brothers and sisters. You are owned by Christ. His blood is on the doorposts of your life so that God's wrath passes over you and you receive nothing but blessings from him. So it's not as if you can shut a switch off and say, God's not here during this moment. And we all fall into this, don't we? We're given to temptations and we fail and we mess up. And here's what God cares about. What do you do with those mess ups? Do you run to your priest and recall the blood of Christ? Do you run to your king and bow before him? Singularity of heart is what God demands and with what, what God wants for you. Sisters, your life does not switch from sacred to secular in a moment of self-worship when you want that guy other than your husband to notice you. Do you at times seek out lustful glances from other men? 
or desire to become more and more emotionally entangled with someone other than your spouse, the temptations are going to be there. What are you doing with those temptations? God sees that. God knows that. And God loves you. And he cares for you. And he wants you to have that freedom of knowing the joy of righteousness that when you put your head on your pillow at night, you put your head on your pillow with a clear conscience. He wants that joy for you. God takes obedience, children, to parents very, very seriously. This singularity of heart is a total commitment to living before God in all things. It is to kill idolatry at every turn. The idolatry for much of history was to worthless idols of silver and gold, the golden calf. But the golden calf of our age is not the gods of stone, but gods of self-worship and what I want, when I want it, how I want it right now. And boy, we've got that in this country. If you want something, it's a click away. Anything. It's a very hard time to be a Christian. Hear me on that. Because sin and all its temptations are just a click away. And you have your Father in heaven who adores you, sings over you, and he wants you to have that freedom to be able to say, no, I don't have to do that. I am bought with a price. Complete freedom to do whatever I want, whenever I want, however I want, that is this age The God of this age is lust in all its various forms. Brothers and sisters, we have to be aware of this for our children too. Are you modeling for them this word? No. It's an ancient word. It's an old word, but it's a good word. No. And we love our children. We love to spoil them. Right? Our Father adores us, and we ought to adore our children, but but say no. That is not good for you. Are you modeling that yourself through self-control? Locking your computers down in your home? Knowing where they're going on the web? Do you have your home properly protected so that they can be guarded to have the space of singularity of heart to God? This is not only for our protection and for our good, but our Creator King, notice this too in verse 5, He rewards you. He rewards you for seeking him in his way. Verse 5 tells us that the reward for walking in integrity, walking in the joy of your salvation, is the enjoyment of God's presence through blessing and through righteousness. These blessings are found again in God himself, and they're not subject to your feelings. Maybe some of you have had that struggle where, you know, today I'm just not feeling it. It's not feeling saved. I'm not feeling like a good Christian today. You ever get in bad moods? Yeah. It's not based on your feelings. This is a fact, and this is a truth that you can take to the bank. He has enjoyment and blessing and righteousness through his son for you every day, no matter the circumstances. God doesn't change. His word does not change. His His promises are not subject to your whims. Isn't that good? That is a good thing. The word righteousness also has has a, a meaning to it of vindication. This has the idea that we are protected, we are counted as righteous because of Christ's work, not yours. We are justified by him. This also has a future component to it as well. Because we were saved... 
We're walking in salvation now, and one day we will be saved. And he has it fixed for you. It is set for you. We will finally be made complete and finally vindicated one day. Verse 6. The psalmist turns to the nature of those who are the recipients of God's blessings. This is a group or a collective people. This is a generation. This is the family of those who seek after God, the face of God, the presence of God, live according to the ways of God. These are true descendants in the family line of Jacob, the people of God. These are people who do not see the moral code as the end in and of themselves, but are simply the out love his ways. That is a truth. If you're a child of God, you love God and his ways. Romans chapter 6 says, How then shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And he says, May it never be. Do you know how many times he says that? Over and over and over, God forbid. If you are a believer, you move from practicing sin to the presence of God where you begin practicing righteousness because he gives that to you as a gift. It is sure and fixed. You still sin, you still mess up, and you have a priest who, who covers you. But you ask for forgiveness, you make that right with him. But you no longer practice sin as a way of life. The generation of God, they seek the presence of God and all the ways of God. Simply put, those who love the Lord, they love his ways. And his ways are holy and righteous. Our God is a loving father who simply wants the best for his children. When I was growing up, my father would watch these old black and white sitcoms. You know, it was the Leave it to Beaver era. My dad was kind of like Ward Cleaver in a way. Um, and, and we had this other show on called Father Knows Best. Some of you need to check that out. It's a great show. And it's true. Our, our father in heaven, does he know best? He knows what's best for you. He knows how you will be happy. So it's important for us to remember this, that he loves us and wants us to have all the blessings and rights of being his children. It is important to get this greatest point in these verses that the Lord Almighty brings blessing, victory, righteousness. And this victory is a victory over sin. It's a victory over death. It's a victory over hell. It's a victory to heaven, to that final holy hill. Lastly, in verses 7 through 10, we move from who we are in God with all the rights and privileges and, and the, the possession of Christ. In verses 7 through 10, we have this divine warrior that he is fighting for you. When you're tired and worn out battling sin, and if you're a Christian, you will be. Battling sin is exhausting, isn't it? Your greatest enemy, which is you, my greatest enemy, which is me, it is tiring. Forgot who said it, but it, the prayer was, God, help me to bear the greatest weight of all, myself. My own sin. Help me to bear that, right? Battling sin is tiring. It's vexing. It's frustrating. There's tears. There's prayer. There's, there's falling over and over and over, but the righteous man gets up again. He doesn't stay down. And, and, and notice this. Notice this. You have a divine warrior who is fighting for you. He knows that you're but dust. He knows that you are feeble and frail. 
But praise God, Christ is strong. He is king, and he's a warrior. So in verse 7, the idea here in this language is that the whole city and all its inhabitants are called upon to receive the great warrior king with great joy and with great anticipation. Verse 9 repeats this exhortation to the people to help heighten this importance of preparing for this. Twice the people exclaim, who is this king of glory? Verses 8 and 10. They answer boldly this question, loudly, that this king of glory is the Lord mighty in battle. And he is the king of glory. Three times he is the Lord. He is the God of the covenant people. And today still, this is our God. The God of this passage is alive and demands this worship and he demands this reception. Just as much today, this God strong and mighty, this God mighty in battle is our warrior. And remember this, when you're struggling with your sin, he is for you. He is for you. So let me ask you, do you believe that timeless, perfect truth? Do you today believe that God is for you? Or have you given up? Men, have you given up? Maybe with that porn addiction, you're like, I I just can't get this. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty in battle. He is for you. He has the victory. Run to him. Don't recoil. Run to him. Ladies, maybe you're struggling again, as we mentioned, with, with your children. You're struggling with being a wife and the exhaustion that comes with it with day in and day out. You're going to the back of the house again for the ninth time in the last half hour to break up a fight. Do you remember when you're vexed and worn and angry, God is for you. You have a high priest. You have a warrior king. He knows what you're going through. And he has called you to this task of being a wife and a mother He's for you. Do you believe this truth? This God is for you. He commands heavenly beings. Psalm 89, 6 through 8. For who in the skies above can compare with the Lord, who is like the Lord among the heavenly beings? In the counsel of the holy ones, God is greatly feared. He is more awesome than all who surround him. Who is like you, Lord God Almighty? You, Lord, are mighty, and your faithfulness surrounds you. This God who is for you, he not only created all the stars and planets, but he commands the stars and the constellations as well. Isaiah forty twenty six. If he can command the stars and the constellations, do you think he can command you as a mother and as a wife, as a father, as a business owner, and all the things that he's called you to? This God is for you. He cares for the seemingly insignificant. If you think you're not significant enough, the Lord tells us in Matthew 5.26, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Church, he loves you with an everlasting love. He died on the cross for you. He rose for you. This creator God, divine warrior king, who is the king of glory, has come to dwell in the midst of this church. His covenant people. This is a truly amazing grace that God seeks to dwell with us. 
And he desires to meet with us not only through word and through all of life, but also through a very special gift, the visible sermon illustration of the sacrament of the Lord's table as well. So I'm going to ask the men at this time if they would please find their way to the various stations to which they've been assigned. We're going to move to the Lord's table right now. And I'm going to ask uh, that we just prepare our hearts for this.